All right. We're going to begin our roundtable time. We're going to be focusing on the book, and then we'll transition to some questions for you all for for both sessions that we've had, or all three. So first off, I want to say thank you for writing the book. Many of us have been waiting years for this book, so we appreciate the hard work put into it. And uh, They waited for years, too. <laughs> yeah, they waited for years as well. Yeah, and, and you all ought to rejoice because the stuff that they've taught here, and there's much more in the book, obviously, with 800 pages, they're teaching to hundreds and hundreds of students every year. And they're going out and pastoring churches, so it's good news for the future of the church. If, if they catch it. If they catch it. Hey, even if they catch 40%. I caught about 20%, so I'm grateful for that. So it's been out for about two years now, and I think many of us would be interested in, going back in your own history, what led you to these conclusions? Were there particular books, texts, sermons, people that led you to this via media? Um. I was, uh, my father was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. My mother was a graduate of a Bible college where all the professors came from Dallas Theological Seminary. She was a, a Christian education major when it was brand new. She went to Wheaton College and studied under the Labar sisters, so that was the very beginnings of Christian education. Our home ran like a Sunday school. Um, so you can see what I, uh, that I was raised in a dispensational home, pietistic. When I, went, when I, uh, I became a Christian and I felt a call into ministry, I went to university and that gave me, I learned, I learned uh, you know, the tools for studying the scriptures. And I went out as a pastor. And what happened when I went out as a pastor is every time I came to one of those texts, you know, uh, that are very special to uh, the dispensationalists like 1 Thessalonians 4, I concluded that if you didn't come with their larger story to this text, you wouldn't walk away with their interpretation. So I put everything on the shelf for a while, and, um, and then I told you how, I told you how we had uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson in our home, and he said, well, the covenants are really important. And the other thing, I think, was the use of the Old Testament in the New. Um, when I saw how Jesus and the apostles were using the Old Testament, uh, that, was, that, uh, that was very important. Like, for example, um, Jesus quotes from the book of Zechariah, I think, I think, what is it, one-sixth of all the quotations in the last week of his life are from Zechariah. So I thought, this must be an important book. Um, and uh, in chapter 13, it talks about strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, if you go back to Zechariah, the sheep are Israel. It says two-thirds of the sheep will be lost and only one-third will be saved. Well, when Jesus says strike the sheep, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, he's not thinking of all of Judaism. He's thinking of his own disciples. So that kind of blew my dispensationalism out the window. Hmm. You want me to say? Yes, thanks. Like I came from a different uh, end. Peter came more from, I think, the dispensational end. I came from uh, more of the covenantal end. Uh, raised in a wonderful Christian home where I heard the gospel of a more reformed, and it was Baptistic, 
and putting pieces together and trying to make sense of these things, greatly influenced by uh, more of the theological realm, just showing our differences in, uh, in, um, in interests and all that, more of the Francis Schaeffer, the apologetics, the worldview. Tied to that was making sense of how the whole Bible fits together. And uh, thinking through these matters went to uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and people like Don Carson and Doug Moo started thinking through these matters and saying, yeah, the old covenant view doesn't work just right and have to improvise a little bit and think through this a little differently and especially with Baptist convictions, believing that believers' baptism was correct. Uh, then sort of thinking through these areas and then in teaching, uh, trying to, uh, you know, people would say, well, you know, how do you... How do you understand the covenants? How do you see yourself different than these? And then being forced to think through that a little more carefully. Yeah, just a quick anecdote. Many of you may not know. I uh, I came to these conclusions. I was given a book, or I bought the book, kind of randomly, uh, Abraham's Four Seeds, in 2005, and kind of came to conclusions and would have called myself a New Covenant theologian. And I go to Southern, and I had never heard of, well, anybody. I was a pretty new Christian, actually. I never heard of Stephen Willem, and I took hermeneutics and with Stephen Willem. First semester of Southern, so you can imagine how edifying that was. I was scared to take much from Dr. Gentry, but yeah. And let me let me just add here too. I mean, you know, especially at a John Bunyan conference, uh, you know, giving uh, John Reisinger credit. Uh, you know, I grew up in a home where John would be visitor. Uh, he would speak at our local church. I got to know him just as a as a kid, and then had the supreme privilege of uh, being at college in Rochester, New York, uh, and sitting under his ministry. And, and John was such a, as you know, I mean, just great guy and talked about these issues. He's the one who sent me to Trinity. I was thinking of going to uh, Westminster and saying, hey, you need to go over here. And so can't forget uh, his incredible role in influence too. Absolutely. So it's been, there's been a large response, uh, positive and negative. So both of you say what you'd like to say. First, just what's the general response been to Kingdom Through Covenant? And then specifically, any points of critiques positive or, or positive feedback. Either, either way, feedback that has been helpful in your thinking after the writing of the book. So general response, and has there been anything particularly helpful? You mentioned Moo. Uh, anything else that might come to mind? You know, the, um, I think overall, uh, it's been a very positive response. Right? I mean, uh, many, many people have been helped especially uh, those who are already uh, more Baptistic, Baptistic, Calvinistic, who are saying, yeah, we don't just fit in traditional understandings. This is, this is really, really helpful. Uh, it's also been very, very helpful for younger uh, students who are thinking through these issues for the first time. What often happens, uh, you know, to be honest, right, is as people get older and they get tied into their systems and they they um, uh, also get then pastoring or teaching, I mean, it's pretty hard to dislodge them because there's so much at stake. So that uh, really we see our, our book is trying to influence not just, uh, you know, the professors at Westminster or so. I mean, they're, they're pretty locked in. They have to be. Um, same with various pastors, but a whole generation coming up that are saying, hey, let's think about these things. I don't have any vested interest just yet. I do, I do want to see how this... So that's why we're putting it out there, so that we can say, hey, there's an alternative, uh, so that you need to think about these issues. So it's been really, really well received there. Now, from those who we criticize, of course, uh, you're going to get a, a negative reaction. I think, um, again, it forces us to go back. There's many things we didn't include in the book. 
Romans 9 to 11 was a major, but you know, we ran out of space. And, and, and as you know how books are put together, um, they, they aren't what people think they are put together, right? <laughs> so that uh, uh, we just wanted to get it out there. But uh, I find that most people respond to it from, if they're very, very negative, from already within their larger system. And instead of sitting down, let's sit down and put your system to test as we want to put ours to a test. So I find most of the reactions that way. Yeah, uh, the book is about changing your worldview because we're changing the way you look at the storyline of Scripture. So, for the as, as Steve had said, uh, often the negative reviews tell you more about the, the reader's worldview than uh, about the book. So there, uh, there has been very in the it, there has been very little re re really critique of any of the details in the book. Um, I know of one, I know of one young man who was a Presbyterian minister, and he read the book, and he and he left and became a Baptist pastor. Um, I don't, as Steve said, I don't expect. I don't expect that uh, we're going to win any people over 45 years old. But what will happen, uh, what I think will happen is that uh, the young guys will read it and those older people won't have the answers because we have the exegesis. <laughs> Related to that, one of the criticisms, I can't remember which, when they had the Gospel Coalition responses was... Uh, the minimal references to the New Testament. Now, from, from my experience with you all, I know that it's not a competency issue. I know you both can do you know, exegesis with the best of them, even in the New Testament. You all to know he's a Hebrew genius. I even, I think my Hebrew improved overnight. I'm rooming with Peter Gentry, and he snores the Hebrew alphabet. So I <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> So, but he teaches advanced Greek grammar as well. So we, you can do New Testament exegesis. Was the, the lack of emphasis on the New Testament intentional, or was it just a space issue, or, or what would you say about the lack of... Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately it was a space issue. We ran out of space. The, the primary emphasis was focusing with Peter's part two on, on how the covenants unfold, anticipating the new covenant, and then bringing it over. Now, chapter 16 did deal with how it comes over to the New Testament. There weren't specific things that were dealt with. But I mean, uh, a good a good follow up book is uh, David Peterson's uh, volume on um, I forget the exact title. It's transformed by God. Transformed by God, or so, which is you know an excellent work as he brings that into the New Testament. Yeah. But there's again more could be done and and more needs to be done. But I don't think anything in the New Testament is overturning the basic point that's mm -hmm. that's made. So it's a fair criticism. That's fine, um, and it needs to be you know other passages brought in. Yeah, and we're trying to do that in, in some other follow up things. Yeah, one of the things, uh, actually, my area of specialty is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Bible was trans the, the the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek in the third century B.C. before Christ. So in that field, I have to be equally good in all of the languages, and uh, and I also I entered that field because I wanted to sit on the fence. I didn't like the idea of being an Old Testament scholar or a New Testament scholar. And I think that's a huge problem today because you can't interpret the Old Testament without the New and vice versa. And uh, so um, I had no interest, by the way, in writing this book, but my students bugged me for about 10 years. 
So, um, but in the end, I didn't want to write it without the help of a systematic theologian. So, uh, so I, and then I think one thing that was instrumental is Steve and I meet every week, and this book came out by Paul Williamson, and we thought it was terrible, so we spent a whole year talking, <laughs> talking about it, and then we decided maybe we should write something. Now, surely that's an overstatement. Because <laughs> many of us have benefited from Paul Williamson. Well, it's book. a good book, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. It's not terrible, it's good. No, let me just forget Williamson. Um, the the other issue of um, the New Testament data. One of one of the so some of it was time and, and issues, but the burden of what we were trying to do as well, and particularly in Peter's section, is to show from the Old Testament, right, that in the Old Testament there is already through the covenants a trajectory that's moving in a certain way. So that, uh, for instance, um, uh, with covenant theology, to you and your children, I mean, this is already being transformed in the Old Testament as you move to the New Covenant. Um, you know, some of the land issues, it's already being transformed in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament argument that you're making. Oh, let's read the New Testament and impose it back on the Old. That these things are already going on in the Old Testament. And that's crucial to that's show right. in, our, in our view. Yeah. yeah, and I think you, you probably would acknowledge this yourselves. In the Bunyan Conference, you've had uh, wonderful people write books but on the New Covenant, but they're mostly from the New Testament. So the, the, gap, the gap is really developing this from the Old Testament. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We're grateful for it. So kind of, this is kind of related to all what we've asked. We've mentioned a couple things. Is there anything else, if you had a chance now to redo it, is there anything you would do differently, and if so, how, two years later? Well, I, I, uh, I appreciated the criticisms that Doug Moo made, and I've, 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 uh, I actually have already made up a list of uh, corrections. So if you want them, you can just email me. Uh, uh, we talked to Crossway about, you know, uh, incorporating them, but it would really change all the pagination and kind of re require a revised edition. So not all of those are going to get in right away. So we have to uh, complete our 250-page abridgment, and, uh, which is as much, that's, that's 80,000 words, so that's what he's throwing out of his Christology. <laughs> uh, uh, we... we we have to finish that, and then I guess we'll talk to Crossway about uh, actually making a revised edition. But uh, the way I feel, um, uh, there are little things here and there, but apart from apart from Ezekiel 16, I don't really want to change very much. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, if, if, depending on space issues and all that, I mean, there may be a few places that we could uh, cut a few things and then try to add in some of the New Testament stuff, Romans 9 to 11. I mean, those... Those keep coming up over and over again, so they have to be addressed. So if they were as another book, then that would have to be put in just to show where we were going with that. Yeah. In case you were snoozing just now, there is going to be a 250-page abridgment of the, what, 700-page book. So that's right. good news. Right. It's 800 pages if you read the study on Covenant, you know. <laughs> yeah, including the 100-page appendix. I've read it. <laughs> So many of us here use the label New Covenant Theology, and in, in the book you say it's a species of New Covenant Theology, and you mentioned wanting to come up with a new label for the academy and not wanting to be bogged down by what some perceive as New Covenant Theology. Could you tell us 
some things about that label that you may have seen that concerned you that wanted you to move away from New Covenant Theology to Progressive Covenantalism. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was my chapter. We did that in consultation. And uh, the struggle with it, and I had this conversation with you uh, as well, and because of our, our forefathers, we don't want to uh, diss, you know, what guys like John Riesinger and others have done, right? Um, we also have run into the problem of there are people who use the New Covenant label that create baggage that we're trying not to communicate. Now, it doesn't seem to work because they just lump you down anyway, so you have to define your terms. Now, what we were trying to avoid just with explicitly the New Covenant label, at least what I was trying to avoid, was this charge of antinomianism. We are not antinomian, right? I mean, and it's the farthest thing from us, right? It's a total misunderstanding. So we thought, well, uh, let's uh, call something different, and then because of progressive dispensationalism, we'll call it progressive covenantalism and try to bring in that to it. And also not just, you know, it, it's all of the covenants together, trying to capture a term that brings that in. But in the end, I mean, what if, if New Covenant theology is properly defined as, as John and others like yourself and others are doing that, uh, that that's fine. So it's... It, it, they're going hand in hand. But progressive covenantalism does try to capture the sense of the progress of the covenants, too. So. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a label for it, so I just let Steve do it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, progressive dispensationalism, and, and I've got a very limited view, but it does seem to me that classic, traditional, even revised dispensationalism is... Not on the rise, to put it that way. Certainly in the academy, and especially in the younger generation, it's very rare to find find those. But progressive dispensationalism sort of holding on, and uh, there's commentaries being written from that perspective, especially with, with Bach, but it's very hard to find any major commentary now written by a classic or a traditional right. dispensationalist. So... Progressive dispensationalism still on the on the table in many in many circles. What would be some weaknesses? And I know you covered in the book, but what are some weaknesses of progressive dispensationalism uh, that you want to make us aware? Yeah, of? yeah. I mean, again, uh, there's so much um, from the progressive, depending on who you're talking to, because there's a variety within within progressive dis- uh, dispensationalism as well. So if you're talking about the the Bach or Blazing and others, I mean, there's there's they're on the um, the one side of it, and then you might have others. I don't know where MacArthur would stand, whether he's still, he considers himself progressive. I mean, he's a little different than those guys would be, right? Um, so so uh, we, there's, there's a lot of agreement. I don't think, I mean, a number of points would be different. I don't think they really think, um, they, when I say this, I mean, they're not going to deny it, but it doesn't show up in their, in their writing. They don't work, I think, consistently from Adam through the covenants to Christ. So often they'll start with Noah. Uh, if you think of um, uh, Craig Blazing and, and Bach's book on, on progressive uh, dispensationalism, it begins with Noah. It doesn't begin in creation. Now, they don't deny creation, but I don't think it functions the same way as it, it's trying to do for us, right? So that that's a difference, and they don't see the progression of the covenants. They're going to then take the Abrahamic covenant and particularly tied to the land promise, Israel is not the same as the church. So I do not think they view consistently. They, they would acknowledge this, but they don't view it consistently as they work it out 
Israel to Christ to church. There's still too much of an Israel church contrast because they then go back to the Abrahamic covenant. They pick the land promise out of there and treat that as unchanged and unchanging across the covenants. And they don't see the land uh, promise as we would see it rooted back in creation. Eden ultimately then fulfilled in the new creation. Right? So a real typological pattern. So those are some major differences. So it shows up then in um, Israel church differences there. It shows up in eschatology. And then there may be some implications on how they work out atonement and a few things like that. You mentioned the, the way both lack, I mean, pretty much say they don't have enough Jesus. They're not truly Christ-centered. They're Christ-centered <laughs> yeah, in many yeah, areas, yeah, yeah. but there's a few areas where it's not as consistent. And you mentioned the necessity, especially think, talking to our covenantal brothers, of moving not from Israel to the church, but Israel to, the Christ, to Christ to the church. Right. Um, and we mentioned how much we love so many of our Reformed brothers, and especially Westminster, Westminster oh, East. Yeah. Uh, Vern Poitras said in his book, Understanding Dispensationalists, he makes the same argument that we should not move from Israel to the church, but should move from Israel yeah. to Christ yeah. to the church. What would you say are implications of him agreeing with that? Well, I mean, as a Presbyterian, yeah, I mean, you know, and if you read his treatment of uh, Matthew five, seventeen and following, you know, I've come to abolish but fulfill. It's very, very similar to say a Don Carson and others who would be more Baptistic, right? So I, I guess I come away with saying uh, they're on the right track here, but they're not consistently working it out. So what's holding them back? Well, I, I think what's holding them back is ultimately their system that they can't give up. And I guess I came to the conclusion, and this this is you know this is being sim maybe simplistic and reductionistic, but you know what drives that covenant theology in many ways? If you if you want them to get really reactionary, you know people are reactionary at the heart of their viewpoint. So if you want to get reactionary, go after infant baptism. So infant baptism drives the entire system. It'll drive uh, eventually. You look at Greg Beal, Greg Beal's work on uh, New Testament biblical theology. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. And then at the very end, you think, what on earth happened here? He, he's now bringing back the nature of the church is, is the same as Israel. He's bringing back all the Sabbath issues. You think, I didn't see this in any of your exegesis of this. And, and so it's almost as if they're reverting back to their system. So I think that there is uh, much more agreement on issues, but then at certain points, it's just very, very difficult uh, to give it up for a variety of reasons tied to the system. Now, they would say it's, you know, the confession is true and it's right at that point. And I'd say, no, you're not consistently following through. Yes, I, uh, by the way, Daryl Bach was my classmate and Greg Beal was at Dallas at the same time as well. Um, I think that uh, when you give up the dispensational distinction between the church, uh, between Israel and the church, you've given up dispensationalism. Uh, my professor was S. Lewis Johnson, Jr., and he left Dallas be, because of his views on the extent of the atonement and because of the fact that he had given up that distinction. I, I personally think, and I think I can say this because of my connections with Dallas, which go right back through my father to 1950, I think it was some, I think it's somewhat dis, uh, dishonest to call it progressive dispensationalism. I just wonder if they were trying to hold on to their constituency to, uh, to, to, to call 
to, to keep to call what they're calling uh, dispensational because um, if you talk to to uh, Bach and Blazing, they talk about one people of God in Scripture, but they don't. They're not really where we are on that topic, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I mean, if, if you if you say um, the heart of dispensational theology and all of its varieties is the Israel Church distinction that they still maintain, then I think you can say they're still dispensationalists. Um, they do hold to one people of God, which would be different than classic and revised, so it's very, very close to covenant theology and ourselves at this point. Uh, you get the sneaky suspicion that down the road, um, because of the land issue, you, you have one people of God, but there's a kind of special sort of privilege over here for Israel, so the, the, and then the Gentiles, um, where, I mean, we see as, as you're moving across redemptive history, everything is culminating in Christ and his new man. Uh, the new church, the new people, right? It doesn't go retroactive in redemptive history, right? So um, I think they're still dispensationalists. Uh, whether they're fudging or not, I don't know. They still affirm. Yeah. All right, Dr. Gentry, a question for you. Two questions. Uh, one, why is there a reason why you call it covenant with creation rather than covenant with Adam? That's the first part of the question. And the second, within New Covenant theology, I don't know percentages, but there's certainly a mix of those who would hold to some sort of covenant in Genesis 1 to 3 and those who wouldn't call it a covenant. Those would certainly grant that creation's foundational, Adam's the representative man, and the importance there, but wouldn't call it covenantal. So the first question, why not covenant with Adam? And the second question, for those who don't or weren't convinced or weren't here or sleeping through your talk and still don't <laughs> see a covenant there, what would you say are some dangerous implications of not seeing a covenant there, if there are any? Well, um, I'm not quite sure why I called it the covenant with creation. I think that I think that it, there's really a twofold a twofold covenant, right? There's a covenant between humanity and God, and there's a covenant. There's a covenant, a covenant relationship, I should put. There's a covenant relationship between humanity and God, and there's a covenant relationship between humans and creation. So, in a sense, uh, even though man is the pivotal figure, God is relating to all of creation in this covenant. Uh, I, I don't, but I, I you know, if uh, you could, I, I don't, uh, if someone can come up with a better label, uh, I don't think covenant with covenant with Adam brings out the idea that it's, but there's a vertical part and there's a horizontal part between Adam and the rest of creation, between humanity and the rest of creation. So um, maybe, I, I'm not stuck on labels, maybe the term covenant with creation it helps people think just beyond beyond Adam. Right. Uh, go ahead if you want to add anything to that. Well, um, I'm not a I, I'm not very smart at these things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, we called it covenant with creation um, to pick up the you could call it I mean, all the covenants are were worked through mediators. So I mean, ultimately Adam becomes the head and mediator of that. Right. He's a representative figure. Now, why covenant creation? Well, to pick up the whole uh, structure of Scripture from creation ultimately to new creation. Uh, now, it goes from Adam also to Christ. Right now, the word covenant is not there, and people fuss uh, about that and say, "Well, it's not covenant." Well, what is it then? Right. So that uh, I mean, the whole structure of the Bible goes from Adam to Christ, not Noah to Christ, 
Not Abraham to Christ, Adam to Christ. So what's lost here? Well, whatever you want to call it, there has to be in creation Adam's pivotal representational role. Otherwise, original sin, the transmission of it, his, his work there is gone. Right? I mean, so he has to have a unique representational role that then is picked up in these other covenant mediators. So uh, the word covenant is not found, but it's got to be something like that, right? Uh, if you don't want to call it that, you still have to make sure your storyline goes from Adam to Christ. It doesn't, this is the problem with some of these other, not so much covenant theology, um, but, but uh, dispensationals, I mean, it's almost with Abraham, right? Uh, so it, these are the structures that the scripture gives to us. Now, we would also, uh, I would also argue, and I think Peter would agree too, I mean, there, there is uh, in its context, context and everything else, um, abundant reason to think of uh, this is a covenantal relation. I mean, all of God's relationships are presented in that fashion. There's no reason to think that this isn't as well. You also have the very patterns that are established there. The rest of the seventh day. You have the Eden sanctuary, the role of Adam. You have, I think in Genesis 2, I, again, this isn't definitive, but the very name of Yahweh that's used. I mean, Moses writing to his, you know, the people in the wilderness, this is the covenant name of God that goes, is, is mentioned in Genesis 2. I mean, I don't think this is uh, the JDP theory of the documentary positives. I think this is, this is a covenantal name, and this is how it's presented here. So people can talk about these issues, but something is going on there of Adam's representational role. That's clear, Romans 5, and as Adam works itself out in Scripture. Uh, Adam to Christ. Uh, that the covenantal, the, the creation patterns that are established there, all the way with land, presence, rest, all of those things, everything goes back there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the grounding to morality, the grounding to covenant relation, I mean, the grounding to image bearer, the image language that Peter worked through, I mean, is, 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 is presented covenantal. So if, it, to me, if it smells like a covenant, looks like a covenant, feels like a covenant, there's something covenantal there. Yeah, I think, uh, I think the biggest problem is, with the church today is they don't know how to read these texts according to their cultural and linguistic setting. Uh, the, uh, our culture in the Western world is, is based on a Greco-Roman heritage, which means that we automatically feel a greater affinity with the New Testament than we do with the Old Testament. Going to the Old Testament is like walking into a different culture, a totally different world, and we don't we don't know about that world. Uh, what I what I was trying to say today is, if you understand the word image and the word likeness, the way you sh- the way a person would in the 14th century B.C., you would understand that he's talking about a covenant. That's as clear as the nose on your face. From the from the 14th century BC reader, um, from that, from my, from my, because I've spent my whole life in the ancient Near East. Um, my son once said, to oh, Dad, you don't know anything about culture," and I said, "Yes, I do. Culture 3,000 years ago." <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, and the other part, the other part uh, that Steve brought out is. Uh, uh, is that uh, if you don't start with Adam, you have an emasculated storyline. And uh, this is what happens, I think, with our Presbyterian brothers. They don't really, they don't really, they don't have a, an un- they don't understand Genesis 1 and 2 like I've, like I've unfolded it. 
So they don't really know what to do with Noah. So their storyline starts with Abraham. You know, and what does that do with your comparisons between Adam and Christ? Christ is the head of a new covenant community. So what is Adam? You know, is he just a, a progenitor, a biological progenitor? Is that all he is? So, uh, so I I think that uh, I, I I and and you know the word the problem with people is with a lot of people is they they haven't they haven't learned to. Well, let me just give one more illustration. You know, in the book of James, it says that Elijah prayed earnestly. Now, I dare you to go to 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 and find the word pray. What, it, what the text says is he bowed down with his head between his knees. You see, that's what the text actually says. should be obvious to any reader of Scripture that he was praying. That's how James understood it. But the word P-R-A-Y isn't there. It doesn't matter. That's what the text is talking about. You don't, there are, people are, people aren't limited. When you communicate with someone else, you don't actually have to use certain buzzwords to, to, to talk about a topic or get the idea across. And so uh, that's just the way literature works. Um, and, and I'll tell you another thing about this. The prophets of the Old Testament communicated in every possible way, not only with their words, but with their actions. So they had, a, uh, they, uh, the prophets had the, what I call, what we call in Canada, dramas, little, uh, little one-act plays, you know. Uh, Jeremiah went and hid his underwear in the rock, and then Isaiah went naked and barefoot for three years. This, these are R-rated parts of the Old Testament. <laughs> Ezekiel shaved his hair off and blew it out the window, you know, and he got down on the ground with a diagram of the siege of Jerusalem and he had an iron frying pan to show that their prayers wouldn't get through to God. So they communicated using every literary trick in the book. There is no such thing as a genre of prophetic literature because they used every genre. And they used their actions. And Jesus was a prophet, among other things, in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. So, for example, he communicated in exactly the same way. And when you come to the Gospels, the best explanation that you're going to get in the Gospels of the meaning of the cross is not in any of Jesus' words, but in his actions at the Passover supper. So I would argue that the, the, last, the, the last Passover is a drama in which Jesus is telling you what this cross, what the what's what the meaning of the cross is. So the best explanation of the cross from Jesus' point of view, obviously the apostles do a tremendous job with their words, but in Jesus' ministry, his best explanation of what that's all about is not in any of his sayings reported in the gospel, but in the little drama that he pr provides. So you have to be. What I'm trying to say to you is be open to the different ways in which the Bible is communicating. You know, don't just hang everything on a word. Thank you. A few more questions and we'll turn it over. Um, a lot has been hinted at on the practical application, especially what we just heard. Dr. Gentry said you can't elope or go to Vegas to be married. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Wellen has applied a lot to church life. But again, would you just kind of summarize and just bullet points here? what difference this makes in church life and in our own walk with Christ. 
you kind of answered that in your last uh, your last talk. Um, <clears throat> I think this is immensely practical. First, because every one of us has a worldview, and it's the our, we uh, we our worldview is uh, what we use to operate our daily life. And uh, what I it, this only kind of dawned on me in the early 1990s as I finally put the covenants together into and realized this was the storyline of scripture is that this this is actually the framework of my whole thinking and I can answer any question out of it any uh, so it's it, it in other words the storyline of scripture is sufficient for a systematic theology uh, that you and, and every believer is a theologian whether they believe it or not they have some kind of story they're connecting with some part of the Bible why not connect with the whole Bible, with the whole story? And so uh, I'm saying this is the stuff of my everyday Christian life. But go ahead, you might have a lot more. Well, no, I mean, uh, think of Romans 11, 33 and following, where you have the great doxology. Right? So Paul in wrestling with uh, the great plan of God from eternity past, the role of Israel, God's promises as something of that plan is unfolded, right? He is led to worship and adoration, right? So part of understanding the whole counsel of God is to know God, right? to know him and his, his, his plan is, is, is revelatory of him. So it leads to, to our mind, heart full of truth, worship, praise. I mean, all of that, just reflecting on how he has saved us and how he has redeemed us and how that's come across the covenants and how he's made himself known it leads to obedience worship so it's all god oriented right so it leads to that uh and ultimately it then leads to an understanding of who we are right uh what we're about our purpose uh, uh what we are now in christ i mean so you know what we're all about as human beings uh, the very purpose of our existence uh uh, so we don't know something ourselves, what we're to be about in the world. I mean, all of these things are very, very practical. You can't, I mean, we live in a world that um, uh, they don't, people don't know who they are. Uh, they, they feel lost. I mean, we have to now in ourselves know God, one another, live it out in our lives, communicate that to people. And that's where all of this leads very practically. And then first and foremost, all knowing salvation, right? Knowing redemption in Christ. It's not just an intellectual exercise, but knowing that uh, in Christ uh, I have a secure salvation. I have a, a redeemer that accomplished a work that nobody else did. I mean, all of God's promises. I mean, all of that for this life and the life to come. So. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, many of the attendees of the Bunyan Conference are bibliophiles. There's been made mention of several books, but tell us what's what's already in the works that we can expect, maybe from both of you all together. And then you mentioned the edited work. Tell us more about that. Tell us more about the ecclesiology book, the Christology. Tell us about your Isaiah commentary. We want publisher page count. <laughs> they, they we can expect and, and things you'd like to do. So tell us about writing. Yeah, well, uh, just pray that I can get it all done, right? I, I finished um, Person of Christ book for Crossway Foundations of Theology series. It has to get through my editor. Uh, my 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 uh, advisor at Trinity, John Feinberg, wonderful, uh, godly man, and, and uh, so he has to approve that. I've just got to edit it, get it to him. But that'll be primarily on the person of Christ, not so much work. So that's, that's right immediate. Um, another year or so, I have to have another short work. Well, we have the shortened work of Kingdom Through Covenant due end of June. I have a short 
work that's supposed to be Persimmon work for its Solus Christus, for Zondervan celebrating the Solas of the Reformation. So then I'll just uh, put together Persimmon work in a very popular sense. It's about 250 pages. And then, uh, Lord willing, I'm uh, working on a systematic theology with Robin and Holman, B&H. So that's due a few more years down the road, right? So trying to... I mean, there's a lot of systematic theologies out there, so what am I doing this for? I'm trying to do it in such a way that I move from biblical theology, the covenantal relations, framework of scripture, like I laid out in chapter 16 of Kingdom Through Covenant, and then applying it through every doctrinal area. Right? So how does this work it out in, in the doctrinal areas? So that we move from biblical text to biblical you know, canon to systematic application uh, to, I'd like to do even worldview formation, how we then view the world in light of what scripture is saying. So those are the main projects. And then there's the edited work on um, uh, a few essays in there trying to work through Sabbath law for us today, this type of thing, just as an outworking of the book that uh, a few people, Peter and others, are part of Dr. Schreiner, Tom Schreiner, and others like that. You noticed how um, he mentioned the commentary on Isaiah. Most of what I write is unreadable. In my real life, I'm a textual critic, and uh, and uh, I'm preparing a critical edition of the Greek text of Ecclesiastes, uh, based on an analysis of all known manuscripts, every last quotation in the Greek and Latin fathers in the first hundred seven hundred years, and nine daughter versions because. The early translations of the Bible were not made from the Hebrew. They were made on the, from the Greek text, so the Armenian, Old Georgian, Ethiopic, and so on and so forth. So this is an, uh, this is an exhaustive and exhausting study. Uh, I'm supposed to do Proverbs when I get done that. I don't know what will happen. I would like to write a little 100-page booklet on how to read the prophets, that is, uh, reading strategies that would help people understand how these texts work. Um, I'm translating a book from French into English. It's the best analysis of Isaiah 7:14 that uh, that uh, has been written. Uh, it's in French, uh, and uh, most people in the U.S. don't read French, so. Um, I, if, if, it, if it doesn't get translated, it won't, it won't I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about the average people. Most scholars in North America don't read French. So if it doesn't get translated, it won't have an impact um, like it should. And um, uh, those, are, those are some of the things. Uh, I'm actually quite excited. The book is that we don't view Kingdom Through Covenant as a sort of finished product. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's programmatic and suggestive. So it, there are lots of doctoral dissertations that could come from ideas in the book and a whole new systematic theology that would be written from, from this perspective. So it's really Steve that has the, the work and I'll continue writing my unreadable materials. <laughs> And aren't we glad the church has all these gifted people and he has those gifts and I don't? (laughs) Well, seriously, praise the Lord for both these men, for their gifts of the church, their teaching ministry. Pray for them. 
got full mm. teaching loads and, and writing as well. So I got busy lives. Pray for them to continue to be used and much fruit. 